Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's time for the show that brings the magic right to your speakers. Ears up! Hey, welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, look, I got to tell you guys, just off the off the jump here, I feel really odd playing our intro music to Don Dorsey. Like, I don't know. I, I didn't write it. I have nothing invested in if it's good or not. But I feel like it's, it's a representation of us. And so, you know, I don't know. It's like... Uh, it's like showing Michelangelo Terrence's uh, Eeyore drawing. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. Here's what it is. Anyway, uh, yeah, everybody. So normally this is the part of the show where we sort of goof off and you know give you announcements and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not going to do that because we have the, the legendary, the great Don Dorsey on the line with us today. And so we're going to be talking to him about uh, pretty much anything we can. And it might be Disney related. It might actually not. I don't really know. I have to look at my notes. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna chat with Don and then uh, you know take a break and then do all their normal stuff like Disney news and all that kind of fun fun nonsense. So if fun nonsense is what you're after. You got to wait a little bit. Anyway, welcome to the show, Don. How are you doing, sir? Hello, guys. I'm Hello. doing great. I'm here uh, in California. It's perfect. A chilly, brisk evening. It's been a lovely day. Oh yeah, you gotta love them, man. It's uh, you know. Global warming, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, well, again, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, I wanted to sort of jump in with your time at Disney. You are sort of responsible for a lot of people's memories at the parks and a lot of almost how people think about parks, especially parades and nighttime spectaculars from the Disney theme parks. So I wanted to jump in a little bit in how you got started working with Disney and what led you to to your musical career. Essentially, I'm not and I'm not even blowing smoke. I think it's just stating fact, like sort of reinventing how how parades work at Disneyland. Um, how much time do you have? Um, <laughs> yeah, whatever you want. Eight hours. Let's just go. I, I want the whole thing. <laughs> this, is the, this is the story that everybody wants to hear. And I've been actually researching it the last couple of months to make sure uh, because it was so long ago, it's over 45 years now. And wow. I, I have in my mind what I think the story was, but I wanted to sort of nail it down once and for all. And uh, the stories that I've told in the past are, are still true, but I have a lot more detail and support now from actual documentation that I have amassed over the last several months. Smart. But basically what it comes down to is um, I grew up in Fullerton, California, which is about six miles north of Disneyland. And so 
being basically in my front yard, we could see the fireworks at Disneyland every night from our porch. And uh, my father was a chemist and we would drive down to Disneyland and park across the street at Howard Johnson's. And I would lay on the hood of the car and my dad would talk to me about the fireworks and what, what was going on chemically. So I had a little background in fireworks and I always loved fireworks as a kid. You know, when it was 4th of July, we would go buy the largest assortment that we could and I would take them out of the box and put them back in the box and see how much empty space there was, realizing that we could have had a lot more for the same amount of money if we were clever about our purchases. Sure. So fast forward a bit to uh, high school Mm -hmm. and uh, some friends of mine uh, and I went to Disneyland uh, in June of 1973 to see the original Main Street Electrical Parade and our mission for the day was to go at opening, stay in the park all day, do absolutely everything at least once. Wow. And okay. so when it, when it got to be evening, we, we parked ourselves on the curb um, right near Coke Corner and uh, waited for this famous Main Street Electrical Parade to come down the street. And I remember hearing it approaching in the distance. Mm-hmm. And then the lights went out and that was nothing spectacular. Just the lights went out. Okay. Lights went out. (laughs) And then a few seconds later, there was an oscillator sweep. And then the original Baroque Hoedown track faded up. I was so taken with the whole experience, you know, seeing the parade coming in the distance and hearing the music come up. um, I was just sort of, I guess, enraptured would be the, the term. Um, And then experienced the parade going by and was just sort of, all agog at the experience. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, uh, this is something that appeals to me. I want to do this somehow. I don't know Hmm. what this was in particular, but I knew that it was something that I was felt drawn to. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I wished it had a stronger beginning. I wish at that moment when the lights went out, there was something to really set off the beginning of the show. You know, if you go to the theater, there's an overture, there's a moment, um, there's excitement that builds and then here we go. Yeah. And there was no big, here we go moment. Uh, so I had that sort of percolating in the back of my mind at that point, but we got up from the curb and turned around to go to the Matterhorn, which was our last e-ticket of the day and promptly tripped over the curb and bruised my knee, tore my pants, drew blood. Um, to further cement in my mind the evening's experience. Right. And uh, from there, we went to the Matterhorn, and here's Jack Wagner's voice telling us to remain seated, please. Uh, but I didn't know who that was at the time. I hadn't given to, you know, what the voices that I'd been hearing all day. Mm-hmm. It turned out to be Jack. I had purchased a mini mug the first summer out of high school, which was 1972. And... So I was messing around with overdubs and bouncing tracks and all of that high-tech stuff. A little, little bit of time, and I get a phone call from the uh, Los Angeles and Orange County Moog said, uh, okay. you're going to get a call from a guy named Jack Wagner. He wants to borrow your mini Moog. Okay. Uh, I said, okay. <laughs> for the halftime show for the Orange Bowl for 1974. And they borrowed mine and Jack and I uh, got to talking and he said, uh, so what are you doing with your Minimoog? And I told him about my 
antics in the recording studios and at home with my own studio and all of the technical stuff that I was doing just to sort of hone my recording engineer skills. And he said, well, let's stay in touch. So uh, we did. Um, a while passed. And hey, Don. This is the trouble with long stories. <laughs> well, especially with connection issues. So we're, we're still just having a connection issue. And I, I hate to make you jump through another stupid hoop, but um, Taryn emailed you a, a phone number and that'll just have you dial in. Would you mind doing that? Because we're, we're losing we're losing a lot of the story. And uh, I, I don't want to like, um, you know, I want everybody to hear right. it. You know what I mean? I apologize. It's not uh, something that usually happens. Uh, that's the best that's the best that we can do with the uh, current technology we'll available see. to us. I hope it'll work, man. God, I feel so bad. I just, and I it's like, again, it's, it's nothing. It's, I, I can't control it. I don't feel, you know, I didn't, I, yeah. I didn't write the software, I know, but I feel bad, man, because it's just such a, like a, I, I want to hear it every day. Yeah. Does it really? <laughs> oh yeah. Just, it happens all the time. doesn't make it any easier. No. <laughs> I feel like I have to, I'm going to pay Don for his time. <laughs> They're just soaking so much of it. It says I'm here. Am I yes. here? Don. You yes, are. you are. Okay, good. Okay. Baby steps. Yes, but yes, exactly. And you know what? Honestly, man, from the bottom of my heart, I really appreciate you sticking around with this. Um, it's not easy. Um, I don't know what's, what's happening with my uh, internet connection tonight. So I apologize for that. Uh, it's fine. It's totally fine. To, to recap... You ended up hearing Jack Wagner's voice at Disneyland at this pivotal moment where you said, hey, I really want to do this thing without even really knowing what it is. Jack talks to you and he, he borrows your mini Moog, which is a, a synthesizer, I think. It's like a, can you just explain to me what that is? Yeah, mini Moog was a monophonic synthesizer, which means one voice at a time. You can play one note at a time. And um, it has oscillators and filters and things like that that you can manipulate to change the sound. And one of the things that you can do with it is you can create a tick sound that hmm. can be used as a click track. Okay. And uh, and Jack and Jim wanted to uh, create a click track for the Orange Bowl 1974 halftime show that they were working on, which I think was the 50 Happy Years event. So Jack and I got to talking after that, and he wanted to know what I was doing with the Minimo, uh, what my background was, what my skills were, and he said he just said let's stay in touch. Yeah. So I thought, okay, fine. Uh, didn't attach a whole lot of weight to it because I still hadn't formed in my mind any connection to Disneyland or to the park and to the parade, other than I felt very strongly about how it was presented. <laughs> So time passed, and I'm uh, arranging halftime shows for my old high school, and I get the idea to do a show with a band and a synthesizer. And uh, I took it to the band director, who thought it was technologically too challenging for a high school to try and mount cabling and amplifiers, and on top of that, um, not a current student. Um, yeah. But I took it to uh, the local junior college, Fullerton Junior College, where I knew the band director from my years in the Orange County Youth Philharmonic. This particular band director was the uh, assistant conductor. Okay. And he was in charge of the band at Fullerton College. And I said, uh, 
How do you feel about this idea of doing a halftime show with a band and synthesizer? He also recognized the technical challenges, but he had a, a different idea. And that idea was to do it as part of a concert setting where it would be much easier to wrangle the equipment. Okay. And they had a concert coming up and he said, why don't you write your chart and uh, we'll do this as part of our concert band evening. And I did. <laughs> and uh, it went very well. And I actually borrowed a second Moog because being it was a one note at a time instrument and I had to change sounds quickly with each section of the music, I needed to have a second synthesizer that I could be adjusting while I'm playing on the first one. So I would play the first melody on the mini mode while I'm patching up the second synthesizer. And then I would switch to that one and be reprogramming the mini mode while I'm playing on the second one. <laughs> of so course. It was, a, it was a, a bit of a logistical nightmare, but I had, you know, practiced and it was something that I really wanted to do. The concert went well and uh, more time passed. And I was invited to come back and do the same piece again. Mm hmm. And this time I remembered Jack and I notified him to see if he wanted to come to the concert, which he did. And after the concert, he came up to me and said, I think we have a job coming up that you would be useful for. Wow. And after a few more months, he called again and said, uh, it's time. And that was America on Parade, the project that he had sort of known was coming, but didn't want to commit until it was certain. Wow. How old were you at this time, Don? Uh, this was 1975, so I would have been 22. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. A baby. And so you're, I mean, so I just, there's a lot even to unpack there. But, uh, you know, in general, so the Moog rep, I guess, knew that you had one and was putting, yeah, that's, I a was, odd, that's an odd connection. I like that. It's, uh, they didn't sell a whole lot of Moogs in those days. Mm -hmm. It was $1,230 when I bought mine and um, I guess the rep knew everybody who had one because there was probably only one or two of us <laughs> right. certainly in Orange County Yeah, and uh, he enlisted me to do some demos and I actually went to a couple of local schools to show off synthesizers to the kids don't know that it generated any sales but I did get paid uh, to do those demos awesome so we had the relationship, and that allowed me to borrow that second synthesizer for the concert. That's very cool. I just say we are talking to a visionary because you have to think about this. This is the 1970s. There, it was unheard of to have a digital electronic instrument on the on the football field for a marching band's halftime show. I mean, even to the 80s, now drum corps, college marching bands digital electronic instruments are ubiquitous. But back then, no one was even considering this, and here he is coming up with this idea and I'm blown away. Well, coming up with the idea and being shot down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but well, now it's, it's everywhere. You were the first person. Yeah. But I also like that you were shot down from doing it uh, for the marching band, but then you got a gig doing it in a symphony hall, which some would say that's an upgrade. Well, I'm not one to let things go easily. It sounds like it. So, and for those of you who don't know, because to be honest with you, I learned this recently. Um, Jack Wagner is the voice of Disneyland. He's doing the announcements or whatever. So, Don, were you a Disney fan before this? I mean, you went to Disneyland and you saw the print and you liked it and you wanted to do it. But were, would you consider yourself a, like a Disney fan? No. Okay. So to you, was no, working um, with Jack just sort Disney of like was, a cool was not gig? a big deal to our family. Okay. Um, 
because it was always there. You know, anytime we wanted to go, we could go. Mm. So we we didn't really hang out, and uh, we enjoyed the fireworks during the summers. Yeah. But uh, during the rest of the year, I was I was just a kid, and uh, you know, trying to get through high school and move on to college. So there wasn't uh, a whole lot of time. Okay. Okay. Never gave it much of a, of a second thought until that. You know, like I said, we went that one day with the intent of trying to do everything in one day. Yeah. So we could say we did it all. <laughs> and did you do it? Did you get to everything? Yes. All we right. did. Atta boy. Atta boy. Which is a lot harder now. Even after the accident. <laughs> for sure. Well, okay. And so America on Parade, um, which is for America's you know bicentennial. I think it started in 1975. Started a little It opened early. in June of 75 and June ran 75. through... Um, October of 76, I believe. Okay. And I looked at, it was like an 18 month thing. Got it. Okay. Uh, I looked up photos on Dave land web and, uh, he had a whole piece on it and the parade pieces look really cool. The, the, the costumes everyone wore sort of looked like a stylized Mary Blair kind of thing. And I know that might be, uh, blasphemous in some circles, but they were very, had this very unique style. Uh, what, what did you do for that? For the, for the parade music for that? Well, um, we camped out in Jack Wagner's dining room. We brought <laughs> oh over God. a <laughs> we brought my over dream. a sixteen track and a mixing console and had synthesizers arrayed around the various walls. And uh, Jack and Jim Christensen had gone to Nashville to record the band organ known as Sadie May, and that was to be the foundation of the sound. And then I was going to overlay what we call in the business sweetening, which means anything additional uh, recorded alongside of Sadie May. And um, what Bob Yanni was looking for was a new kind of sound, sort of a mixture of old and new mm-hmm. that he couldn't really describe. And we didn't have a whole lot of guidance. It was just as we played back the Sadie May tracks, Jim would say, let's add a tuba sound here. Let's add a trumpet sound here. Let's add this. Let's add that. And I ended up doing a lot of things that weren't particularly electronic. Um, I played the banjo. I uh, played tap shoes with my hands. Um, (laughs) We went uh, to the Disneyland Park and recorded um, the train bell and the the steamboat whistle uh, for the transportation section. We went to a local high school where I conducted uh, a bunch of baffled students into a S-T-A-T-E, yay, state, uh, <laughs> cheer for the sports unit. Okay. Um, but there was some synthesizer work as well. Well, I ha- uh, But this was all done in Jack's dining room. God. Wow. I have a little clip of it. I want to play a, a little bit. Hang on a second. Here's American Parade. I love the little like want 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 things because it's very much like Main Street Electrical Parade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for 
I was waiting for the part in that particular track when the, the whoopee whistle comes up. I was oh. do it live. Oh, man. <laughs> but uh, You should have coordinated. You didn't play enough. No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't. Uh, well, and that parade was like a half hour from what I read. That seems like a very long time to sit there. It, well, I'll say this. When the first float was exiting in town square, uh, the whole finale unit was still out uh, behind the small world gate waiting to enter. <laughs> wow. Whoa. It's, I believe that it is the longest uh, parade physically that Disney's ever done. It had the most floats, just a lot of units and a lot of hardware and and those crazy costumes with the big heads. Uh, so I read, so again, on, on Dave Land Web, I read that uh, after its run in Disneyland, apparently the costumes were shipped to Epcot Center for their opening in 1982. Kind of cool. Uh, yes, actually, when the parade ended in 76, the costumes went into storage. I don't think anybody knew yeah. that Epcot was going to happen at that point. Sure. Um, or what Epcot was going to need in terms of costumes. But they ended up coming out of storage and being uh reappropriated for use as walk around characters at Epcot. That's cool. And uh, they did that for a while. Uh, and that was kind of fun. People would take pictures with them and so on. <laughs> yeah. Um, but they were very, very difficult to perform in and particularly in the humidity of Florida in the summertime. Oh yeah. During the uh, premier performance of America on parade at Walt Disney world, I was standing on main street, behind two or three layers of guests and along came the very tall uh we call them dolls mm -hmm. uh performers and one of them just sort of dropped out of sight right in front of me oh no and there was a gasp from the crowd and one of the performers had just passed out and dropped uh, from the heat oh, and uh this was uh, a recurring problem fortunately on a minor scale yeah uh, in terms of significance, but it, it did happen, and they tried lots of things uh, to get little fans cooling inside the heads and so on. But it required quite a bit of stamina to perform in that parade in Florida in the summertime. Yeah, for half an hour. Uh, another note about that parade: it had a giant sandwich in it. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> look it up. It did. Look up these. <laughs> look up these photos. It's wild. It's like a, I don't know, a six-layer sandwich. Who, who doesn't like a sandwich? <laughs> yeah, what's more American with than a, a sandwich? With a, a giant toothpick and a big olive. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Uh, yeah, it seems like a cool I thing. I, so, America... There is a video. Yes, sir. There is a video on YouTube. Somebody uh, digitized the, the uh, Disneyland souvenir 8mm film of America on Parade. So you can actually find footage of the parade on YouTube. Wow. And... Uh, I, th I think there's some content that would be very much unacceptable to present to guests today. Is, is that the one with politically uh, like Red Skeleton? Didn't he do a like a? He did a one-hour uh, TV special. Yeah, uh, with the Kids of the Kingdom, and he did his uh, Pledge of Allegiance bit, and he did his Pecos Bill um, in the Horseshoe, um, and the Kids of the Kingdom did a number of songs. Okay. Um, Interesting. Yeah, that was a fun show. Yeah, it sounds like it. it. Absolutely sounds like it. So, America on Parade, how do you get with the Main Street Electrical Parade? Because, of course, that it predated America on Parade. Because um, the Main Street Electrical Parade was 
early 70s, right? 72? 72. The very first uh, Main Street Electrical Parade was the summer of 1972 uh, and played until uh, fall of 74. And they, then uh, American Parade came in 75 and 76. Mm-hmm. And that teed me up for the return of the Electrical Parade in 77. So by this time, I'd figured out that I, I was going to do my pitch for taking over the electrical parade and creating a new opening and so on. Nice. But I had a, I had a hurdle I had to get over first. And that was due to the fact that in Walt Disney world, Baroque hoedown was being used for the electrical water pageant. Um, and okay. if the electrical parade was going to come to Walt Disney world, they needed new music for the water pageant. Ah. So I was assigned to come up with that. And Jim Christensen and I uh, spent about a week, it didn't take very long, creating a soundtrack for the electrical water pageant. And that went well and everybody was happy. So I took it upon myself to stick my foot in the door and pitch the fanfare opening for the Main Street Electrical Parade. And everybody liked that. And they said, okay, go ahead, do that. And they basically sort of handed me the keys to the soundtrack and said, <laughs> um, have at it, kid. Wow. wow. What do you think, Jeremy? Creating a soundtrack for the for the water pageant didn't take long. It took a week. It's fine. <laughs> well, my yeah, this is interesting. My question is, you know, we I know that they adapted the Baroque hoedown for the Main Street Electrical Parade. Did you adapt something for the electrical water pageant, or is that an original tune? Well, uh, the the traveling music and the show finale were uh, adapted from Handel's water music. And then the individual float char- light characters uh, were themes that uh, Jim and I either made up or, or borrowed from other Disney films. For example, the whale was from uh, Whale of a Tale from uh, oh, what movie is that from? Somebody knows. Thousand Leagues. Uh, no, what is that from? I don't think so. But but that was a Disney tune. And then the other the other animals were just things we made up. And that so then awesome. when you took over for when you when you put your foot in, as you said, for the Main Tree Electrical Parade, this is where you said, no more fade in. We're giving this a fanfare. It's going to be big. Yeah, I had done a demo at home. I, I still had my my little mini studio at home. So I did an actual demo to show them what it was going to be and how it would work. I created the fanfare. I created the the oscillator swoop down and the um drone bed where the announcement would go and i did a little demo announcement and then the sweep comes back in and then it comes up and the tempo starts and then we're into the the blue ferry and i i took off the old baseline which was sort of mushy and uh made it a little perkier uh so it was sort of a, a new melody in itself and that seemed to add a lot of energy and everybody responded well to that Imagine playing that on your station, Jeremy. So, Don, if you don't know, Jeremy runs a, a internet radio station called SpectroRadio.us, where he plays a lot of Disney songs, and of course, it's all you know the royalties get paid, so everyone is it's all up above above board. Um, but for I think I think Jeremy would love that <laughs> just to be playing that. Here's just the Don Dorsey demo track on the demo hour. Wait, Spectro. <laughs> this is it. I mean, I can't play anything that's not commercially released. But man, I would love to get my hands on it just for myself. <laughs> Is that you? Well, it it's actually uh, was actually put on 
a Disneyland Paris DVD <gasps> uh, as part of a program called From One Light Bulb to Another, He's which right. was right again, Farewell to the Electrical Parade and Here Comes Fantalusion. And oh. uh, I did an interview and we played that uh, demo fanfare uh, for that DVD. Oh, my God. So if you can oh, wow. if you can find that, and I think that's probably on YouTube as well. He, he, oh, somewhere be, in there. He's probably on eBay right now. Demo. Well, so he, he, I have the, the intro for the, and I, and this is the, the sweep that Don's talking about. So, uh, let's, let's listen to this. It just makes me happy. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Disneyland proudly presents our spectacular festival pageant of nighttime magic and imagination in thousands of sparkling lights and electro-synthetic musical cells. The Main Street Electrical Parade. Yeah, I'm tearing up. I'm seriously tearing up right now, just hearing it again. Me too, and I gotta say, like. I tear up every time I hear that intro, and it's because it just makes me so happy. And I'm not even so lying. happy. And th- <laughs> and this is what this is why I wanted to play it, and specifically wanted to talk about this with you, Don, because I mean, this parade has such an effect on grown adults uh, for so many years. Like, how, did you? This is going to sound weird, but did, at the time, did you know that this was something special, like almost like a gift that you could give to the Main Street Electrical Parade? Because everyone still loved it. Um, did you know you're going to plus it up this well, much? Uh, uh, when when we opened that first summer, it was back 1977. I was standing on Main Street waiting for the parade to come along, and so then the sound started, and everybody sort of perked up and quieted down just a little bit, and then they heard the announcement, which at that time was just Jack Wagner's plain voice. The electric voice came the next year. Uh. But they heard the announcement, and then as the sweep goes up and the tempo begins, the lights go out on that queue, Mm -hmm. and people went crazy, and they started clapping along as the tempo began. (laughs) So with the reaction that they had and the fact that they started clapping along, I knew that it was going to work. Wow. See, I'm tearing up at that story (laughs) because it was was already – you already knew that it was going to be – popular and disney fans when they like something they don't like it they love it yeah that's true they obsess over it yeah well and this is a well, formula it was, that it was certainly it was certainly a, a great moment for me because here yeah. i am on main street okay i'm standing behind all of these guests packed solid because it's the return of the electrical parade that's been gone and people have been wanting it yeah it's summertime at disneyland everybody's in a great mood oh man and they're all reacting to something that I had done and they have no idea that I'm standing behind it. (laughs) Perfect. Oh my God. That's so cool. That's amazing. I love it, man. I love it. It's a formula that works. I mean, now think about paint the night spectro magic Mm -hmm. fan illusion. They all have that bam, that fanfare. And then the lights go out and everybody goes crazy. It still works. What can I say? (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, and I didn't know, t- and I learned it uh, for doing research for the show. I didn't know that Baroque Hoedown was like an, a, just like a synthesizer piece. I thought it was like a classical arrangement from like a powdered wig guy or something like that. You know, like an old classic. I had no idea. Yeah, it had actually been around since 1967. And um, Jack, being the music producer and former DJ that he was, had an extensive collection of LPs. And he he had a whole room, wall-to-wall LPs, because he had everything. And uh, his research into electronic music had started... um, in earnest when Bob Yanni had suggested that something orchestral would be the music for the parade. And Jack felt that was not appropriate. And so he began the hunt for something that was a little more akin to the visuals that had been presented. Lots of tiny little sparkling lights uh, and fanciful images. He didn't want it to be classical. Um, We'd done the Fantasia thing and, you know, that has, that's a style all of its own, but it, it didn't seem appropriate to Jack for that to be coming down main street with, with this particular parade. So yeah. he tore through all the electronic music albums he had looking for some inspiration. And, um, he found Baroque Hoedown. brought it to Jim Christensen. They devised how to loop the first minute and three seconds um, and then started overlaying the original uh, the original tracks that were in the 1973 parade. Mm. Or 72. Is there pressure? Are you feeling pressure right now? Because, you know, you, you're, you're in charge of the Main Street Electrical Parade, essentially. You, you rewrote the water pageant music in Epcot, like for a young kid, what are you 25 ish? Something like that now. I mean, that's, that's a lot. That's a lot to ask it from, from a young kid. How do you handle that? He also has the Midas uh, touch. That's the crazy thing. Well, I never, I never actually gave it a, a second thought. Mm. Um, I was, you know, I, I just felt you get an idea and you want to make it happen. And then when you get the opportunity to make it happen, you just make it happen. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until, again, that moment standing on Main Street when the the parade started for the first time and everybody got into it that I sort of thought, hey, this is very cool. Um, okay. So, but, but by that time, all the stress had passed. You know, we had done all the work and it was <laughs> uh, it was up to the technicians to make the parade work. And I, I didn't have much of much to worry about at that point. <laughs> <laughs> That's a fair point. It sounds like it was just more of like the, the music experimentation and just nailing the music and everything else that came after of just... It's just, you know, icing on the cake. But yeah, at this point, this was this was really sort of a hobby for me. Um, I had been working in recording studios for three or four years at, at, before we did America on Parade. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it just was something that I did and never really gave a lot of thought to it other than I have an idea. What is what does that sound like? And can I do that? Yeah. That sounds incredible. It sounds like a, a really cool thing to to be a part of, um, especially because you, you you hit it out of the park. Absolutely. What do you move on to next from that? Are you you're still working with Jack? I imagine at the time. Yes. At after America on Parade, 
um, during that whole two-year period, I was working very closely with Jack at his home studio. We had we were doing all sorts of corporate presentations and soundtracks, and um, each week we had a, a different opening that we had to produce for America on Parade because each week was saluting a different state in the order it was admit, admitted to the Union. Wow. So okay. we had to produce each week an update to the parade intro that is nuts. And, and to make that all work after we got done producing those intros at jack's i would go to the park and stand on the rooftop with a headset and a stopwatch to make it work um, <laughs> there was no no computerizing uh the parade route at that time so it was up to me to figure out if i've got seven and a half minutes of intro that is supposed to finish right when the parade arrives I've got to work out all of these different areas and, and when to start each one so that it ends appropriately. And of course I was the only one who had an idea how to pull that off. So again, they looked at me and said, go do it, kid. Wow. It, it, uh, it feels like this era of Disney, even from the opening up until, you know, probably, you know, mid late seventies, you know, I don't know. It is sort of trial by fire. <laughs> I feel like, I mean, the building of Disneyland was sort of like Walt going, no, I think you can do this. And then, like, you know, exit into, and I don't know what I'm doing. Oh, you, you got it. You'll be fine. <laughs> I'm going to go over here and, you know, have a scotch. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of the same well, thing. Well, during this time, the 70s and 80s were sort of the beginning of the technological revolution. Mm. And, you know, getting a synthesizer and, and then going into a studio and being able to record on four tracks and then eight tracks and then 16 tracks. You know, the Beatles were all developing all of their recording techniques uh, just ahead of this time. So, uh, and Disneyland is wanting to improve their sound system, and we're wanting to figure out how to computerize the openings for the parade so that I don't have to stand on the roof every day. Um, (laughs) We're exploring all of these new technologies, um, and that was a very fertile time for new ideas and pushing the envelope as to how can we make these shows that occur all the time, every day in every park, how can we make them better? And that led us to our first, we call it a parade control system, which is a a system that not only synchronizes the floats, but knows where they are on the street so that we can match the music in the building speakers with the floats that are passing by. And so that was, that was something that I got very heavily involved in because I had all the rooftop experience. <laughs> I had rooftop experience. You could be a vigilante. So we, or you invented could work our, for Disney. we invented our first system in 1980 okay. uh, wow. for Disneyland's 25th anniversary. And uh, that I was the music director for that parade. Jim Christensen was getting ready to retire and he said, go for it, kid. So <laughs> there I was again uh, working with how to how to computerize this and how to how to create a new parade at the same time. So you developed the the timing software and the infrastructure to make sure the parades come out, they stay paced with the music, or the music stays paced with them, I guess, or however it works. That was you. Yeah, you, you we, did I, one of the things that I learned early on from watching so many America on Parade performances was that parades have the same problem that freeway traffic does, which is it bunches up and then it spreads out. Mm-hmm. We call it accordioning. Okay. Um, like, you know, squeeze, release, squeeze, <laughs> release. Yeah. And 
So we knew that we couldn't rely on parade floats to hold a constant speed. We had to have a system that would pay attention to, uh, in the early days, it was uh, checkpoints. Each zone that we had uh, would have a radio transmitter boundary and a float would cross that and the system would know where the float was. That has evolved and, and now Disney uses GPS to know where floats are and our accuracy is much greater than every 75 feet. But the early days, you know, we, we found a way to make it work. <laughs> I mean, that's so cool. That's what I mean. You know, you're behind the, the parade as far as, you know, doing the music and or arranging that and playing that. Then you're also up on the roof <laughs> making sure that it runs on time like you were very you know integral part in in how disney is perceived with these with these parades not only in how they sound but how they run that's uh, really cool well i had a lot of fun and and that in terms of my whole 45 year disney arc uh the working with the parades and the staging of the parades and making sure that the audio does what it's supposed to do has been the one constant through those entire 45 years mm. um when I worked with after Jim Christensen had retired and we went through uh, Jack Eskew was music director for a while and then ultimately Bruce Healy and Bruce was a very, very creative guy. And he would come to me and say, I have an idea for what we call a show stop, which is we don't just loop the parade music indefinitely. I want to loop it X number of times and then stop and do a completely different thing. How do we do that? And, and the first time we tried that showstop routine was with Party Gras in uh, trying to remember the year now. But that was the 35th of Disney, Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I had I had uh, we had silver tape stuck to tape machines. And when that tape would go through the tape machine, it would trigger another tape machine that would start the show and it would stop the first tape machine. And then at the end of the show, there was a little piece of tape that would go through and it would trigger the first tape machine to start up again. Jeez. And uh, we, we were flying by the seat of our pants just to, to get these ideas to work. But yeah. um, Bruce was pushing the, the creative envelope of what we could do musically. And I was pushing the pushing back on the other end saying, well, technologically we need to do it this way. Then he would record the music so that it functioned musically. Mm -hmm. And I would work out the technology so that it worked in terms of the uh, control system. Wow. How did Crazy you time. continue to know what was happening? And did you, did you have to take classes to keep yourself up on what new technologies were coming out? Like, how did you do that? When you're in the thick of it, I guess, um, I was subscribing to all kinds of technology magazines. And um, I was still uh, a student at Cal State Fullerton uh, up through 1978. And I studied computer programming, and um, there were other people at Disneyland who were um, putting in place the very early computer systems. The finance department was one area that had a lot of computers, and there was a, a guy who maintained, I guess you call him an IT guy, but he maintained the computers for the entertainment division. And he and I got to talking, and we uh, started writing up our vision for the second generation parade control system and uh then that eventually got funded and eventually it got built and eventually it worked and uh so you just kind of go with the flow and somebody comes up with an idea and you scratch your head and do a little research and come up with something 
Don, I have a question on a slightly different topic before we move too far ahead, because you worked so closely with Jack Wagner, and he's credited with coming up with the area music for a lot of the different parts of the parks. And I was just wondering if you had any exposure to that piece of what he was doing and if you played a role in that at all. Well, when Jack first started with Disneyland, and I think it was 1962, but I'm not 100% positive. I have it written down somewhere. (laughs) Jack was actually brought in to create all the background music for the park. There had been background music, but it was popular songs, as I was led to understand. Um, And Jack was brought in to do themed background music for each area. And he produced those tracks from his vast knowledge and experience as a, as a top DJ in Los Angeles. He was with KHJ for many years, um, had his own TV jazz show. Um, so his background, he knew everything he knew. Like I said, he had this room full of LPs that he could pull things out of a hat and uh, create the themed tracks that were necessary. So that was his first gig with Disneyland. And then after that, he became uh, more of a producer for anything that was going to be recorded for entertainment. He produced some souvenir records for the first souvenir record. I think that he produced was for the main street electrical parade in 72. And, uh, they did a picture disc version, which is where you have a piece of artwork that's embedded in clear vinyl so that it looks like a piece of artwork. Mm-hmm. And he had that record done for Disneyland, and they used the same record of the original Disneyland Electrical Parade, but they put electrical water pageant artwork on it and sold it at Walt Disney World. <laughs> so the early electrical water pageant record that you bought at Walt Disney World in 1972 and 73 was actually Disneyland's Main Street Electrical Parade. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. Right, because you said they were using the Baroque code on, so they just passed it off. <laughs> they just passed it off. And right. and the water pageant didn't use all of the units, you know, Alice in Wonderland, Cinderella, Dumbo, mm-hmm. didn't use any of that stuff, but they left it on the record. Um, I love and it. There you go. Amazing. Thanks, Bob Chapek. No, I'm just kidding. Obviously. <laughs> so, Don, that's wh- great. When do you get your first crack at designing a uh, a parade or a spectacular? Okay, shifting gears now. Yeah, a little bit. Um, 1982. Epcot's getting ready to open, and Aviani calls me into his office and he says, "I want. I'm doing a show for the Lagoon, and I need uh, a soundtrack, and I want it to be." all electronic and he had heard the uh hooked on classics He liked that idea of a a classical medley, not necessarily with the disco drums, but he said, can you do something like that? And he told me about the show and I spent uh, several months 
creating uh, a demo and then ultimately a soundtrack mm -hmm. for the very first Epcot Lagoon show, uh, which was Carnival de Lumiere. Mm -hmm. So not only did I create the soundtrack, but I was still a technical consultant. So I was involved in the fountain programming and the firework programming and all of the we used Apple II Plus computers on the barges, and uh, we were lucky that everything got to work at all. Um, <laughs> but on the barges, the images uh, were projected on home Kodak ectographic slide projectors. And I suspect this was because Kodak was a sponsor of the Imagination <laughs> Pavilion, and they probably provided all these projectors. But it turned out that the light projection from a slide projector on a barge in the middle of a lagoon 600 feet away from anybody is not bright enough to communicate the images that Bob wanted to, to use. And yeah. ultimately that show lasted, I think seven performances total. Oh geez. Um, oh, that's it. Before it was, it, it was, it was relegated to the uh, let's rethink this category. <laughs> and so that was October of 1982. And I had just spent months creating this massive musical soundtrack. And uh, I didn't want it to be thrown away. Right. So uh, when, when I found out that uh, Disney was going to seek the consult of several serious multimedia show producers to come up with an idea to hopefully reuse the existing barges, but come up with a new show concept... I was in there saying, well, here's some music if you want to reuse that too. And uh, meanwhile, one of my colleagues, Adam Bezark, uh, and I decided, well, maybe we should make a, make a pitch with an idea as well. See, I'd already been in the habit of sticking my foot in the door. So I thought, why not once more? <laughs> right. It's worked so, so far. So, so we commissioned uh, a whole presentation's worth of artwork. Um, edited a video to the existing music track, and I asked permission to demonstrate it for the executives. Um, they gave us a slot early in the morning before all of the other producers made their pitch. Mm. And so we did our pitch. They had their bagels. Then they went into all these other meetings. And I was allowed to attend the other presentations because oh. of my involvement on the technical side. Oh, that's cool. If they had questions about barge programming or whatever, I was there to answer those. And if they wanted to use the music, I was there to answer questions about that. So at the end of that day, having having watched a lot of really super slick people pitch their ideas, yeah, none of which seemed to very well formed, but they all came across as companies that could pull it off, whatever it ended up being. Mm -hmm. So we all went our separate ways and Adam flew back to California and I had other duties in Florida. So I hung out for a few days. That night, I get a call. They wanted us to do the show. Wow. So, wow. so Adam and I sold them our idea, which became a new world fantasy. And, of course, I kept the music. <laughs> right. Yes. So that was the first, that was the first uh, you know, Lagoon show by default, I guess. Um, and then after that, uh, Laserphonic Fantasy was required to be staged in the round because New World Fantasy was too successful, we were told, at bringing people out of the shops and restaurants to go to the North Shore to watch. <laughs> it was too, you did too good. It was too good. <laughs> so, and, well, 
one of the things that we had done was we repurposed the projections by by changing the style of the artwork, combining pairs of barges together so the image area was much much larger, mm-hmm. um, and basically kept kept everything and did not require them building any major new hardware. So it was sort of a hail mary. We knew there was something coming in the future. We didn't know what it was, but we got through the first summer with new world fantasy and everybody was happy and they saw that it could keep crowds. And that's when they said, okay, what do you do in the round? And we started looking into lasers. So that's when things got really interesting, pulling power to the middle of the lagoon, shooting lasers in four directions from three lasers that were combined with all sorts of very high tech, uh, light phasing accumulators and things like that. And that was when we discovered that if you shoot a laser beam through a curtain of water, you get a sort of a hologram effect. Wow. And uh, Laserphonic Fantasy premiered uh, the first laser image drawn with a technique called blanking, which is instead of just drawing a loop, a continuous loop with a laser, you actually turn the beam on and off very quickly at certain points. So you get a discontinuous line. So we were able to do some rather, rather artistic looking animation with this one section. That's amazing. Um, that was quite an eye catcher. And we won an award from the Laser Display Association for the uh, that particular graphic section. That's uh, That just sounds like peak 80s. Though. There's a, a Laser Display Association. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's cool. <laughs> that sounds amazing. And it what, was international. Wow. <laughs> What a cool, uh, what a cool thing to be a part of, and what in, in such a cool way. You know, you're, I'm, I'm going to tinker with this and make it work and adjust it and whatever. Because I always have this picture in my mind of everything is planned. Yeah. Everything, you know, you you can't change anything, or if it's if it's drawn up this way, it has to be executed this way. Um, but it sounds like it wasn't it wasn't like that. It was just sort of like, well, we have to make something work. Let's figure it out. Let's change this a little bit, or or whatever. It sounds way more. Um, not to say on the fly, like loose. Yeah, it well, sounds a little it, more loose. It, indeed, it was the the way we discovered the uh, the water droplet and laser effect was actually we were at WDI, uh, which was I still think then it was still wed, um, and we were talking to the laser people and they were setting up a laser in the back room and somebody came through with a a, a rag and some cleaning fluid and sprayed it. And it crossed the laser beam, and we went, hey, what's that? <laughs> wow, dude. That's amazing. That's awesome. And uh, and then we had them bring lasers to Epcot, and we set up a, a fountain barge, and we basically hung a hose over the side and created a spray and shot the laser through it. And that did indeed do what we thought it was going to do, and that's when we started down the laser phonic fantasy That's so cool. Direction. That's wow. very cool. Uh, I want to jump ahead a little bit and talk about Fantasmic. We're going to hit the 90s here for a second. Uh, I read, well, I guess it's still in in the 80s uh, because of of this. I read somewhere that prior to Fantasmic coming about, you were working on a nighttime river show based on what is possibly the greatest ride experience in the history of the world is the Haunted Mansion. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Yes. Uh, Once again, Adam and I, uh, based on our luck with um, Laserphonic, and this was actually between Laserphonic and Illuminations. We were asked to, 
to have a look around Disneyland and see what we could come up with in terms of a nighttime bit of business that would draw people away from the parade route, which was already overpacked because of the electrical parade. Mm -hmm. Um, Can we, you know, share some of the load with another area of the park that's underused? And very quickly it became apparent that the rivers of America was the largest audience space where there was a a particular sight line that people could enjoy uh, as a large group. So we thought, how about the haunted mansion uh, and why don't we evolve that story a little bit? Maybe, maybe the bride is out looking for the 100th happy haunt, and maybe we're going to find him in the audience. Who knows? Oh, wow. Um, so we went down uh, a lot of research on magic and illusions, and we talked to just about everybody in the magic field, um, including David Copperfield and Jim Steinmeier and Don Wayne, Franz Harari, uh, the list goes on and on. And we started accumulating ideas and melded them together into a show we called The River Haunt hmm. that started. Uh, the beginning of the show was a massive effect of light and movement coming out of the mansion as though the ghosts are coming across and taking over the end of the island. Dude, that sounds cool. Using, uh, using underwater things that would pop up and transforming the island into a a graveyard, if you will, and take it from there. We had uh, couples waltzing on the water. We had a giant floating mm-hmm. organ in the air. That's amazing. We had fountains that were organ pipes. Um, wow. You, could, you can so imagine sweet. where it went. And yeah. uh, we used the pirate ship. We made it a ghost ship. We had the river catching on fire. We had all of the major effects that wow. became part of Fantasmic, ultimately. Um, we did the early research on all of that and on draining the river and building a marina and sound system for the area. All of that work was done leading up to, uh, 1990, I think, which is when, when, uh, actually, no, it was party gras. Uh, the river hunt was targeted for the 35th anniversary year. And then, uh, due to, uh, company fascination with cold air inflatables uh it was put aside because there wasn't enough time to produce it for the 35th Mm -hmm. and lost a lot of steam at that point and then barnett said uh how about we make this a disney thing and we'll get mickey and the characters in there and we'll change the feeling of it a little bit um we had adam and i had been specifically asked to come up with something edgy for a younger audience which is why we went down the, the haunted river path. But uh, ultimately, it made more sense for the park when they came back to the idea of doing something at the river to incorporate more of the Disney IP, which is what they did. And then I stayed on that show as a technical consultant, and I did all of the audio production with Bruce and produced the sound effects here at my studio and wow. uh, did the mix. Wow. That's cool. And that opened, of course, in 92, but then you also were working on possibly one of Jeremy's favorite things in the entire universe, Spectral Magic. Spectral Magic was an interesting project for me because I was was called in uh, to do the first creative on that. And we had Ken Dresser, who had done the original electrical parade float design all the way back in 72. Um, 
we had John Haupt, who was a lighting director and uh, technology specialist at Walt Disney World. We had Tom Craven, uh, the longtime technical director, uh, Walt Disney World. Uh, we had Butch Flannery, our number one engineer and safety guy. Um, all of us who had worked on the Lagoon shows as a team and uh, the later parades as a team, we all had this massive creative session and we came up with the skeleton of what became Spectrum Magic. I was supposed to be the show director. And the first thing I said is, I don't want any short floats like the pirate ship in Electrical Parade. I want a bunch of units that have the length and the heft of Alice in Wonderland or Cinderella. You know, I want, I want the street to be full of a scene rather than just have a bunch of short things go by. And on top of that, each unit has to have a transformation. If it's a, if it's a daytime, it goes from day to night. If it's a, if it's all white, it goes to all color. Um, and so we went down uh, that path and came up with all the major units at that first meeting. And then I got pulled away to do other things and uh, they wanted to take a different musical direction than, than I wanted to do. And so I backed out of that as show director and went a different direction and they, they went ahead and pursued it. And Barnett Ritchie ended up being the show director for a while. And then I think there was another change before it opened. But Steve Scaria, I uh, believe, wrote the, the theme music and it was orchestrated uh, by John Debney, who you will know as a very famous soundtrack composer. Jeremy loves John Debney. I mean, as we all do, but he's wonderful. Yeah. So yeah. was it that it, because it's a different, it's not usual that a parade would be written in six, eight or a waltz. Is that where you were sort of not into that direction or? Well, there was, uh, there were people in the marketing department who said, this is a new electrical parade. And then there were other people in the marketing department who had more rank who said, we want this to be as different from the electrical parade as possible. And so these opposing forces were were hard at work trying to figure out how much it would be like and how much it would be unlike. And the easiest way to make it musically unlike is to go not in a in a two or four meter, but in a three or six, eight. Um, and so that decision was made and then the music was composed for that feel. Got it. And it, it went along very well with the. Uh, the increased elegance of the look of all those floats. Um, it was much more of an experience, uh, you know, with the longer units, it was a longer experience. Each person, each guest got to hear more of the music as a unit went by than they did with the electrical parade in some cases where you had, you know, Pete's dragon came along and was gone almost before you could really appreciate the music loop, which was only a minute long. So they were trying to solve a, a lot of problems uh, not the least of which was who gets the say the final say of what it's like and what it's not like. <laughs> yeah, I think let's refresh everybody's memory just because I like watching Jeremy's face light up when this song plays. On this magic night. Shimmering, shimmering, can- 
it's just it's just lush. I like yeah, it. very grand, yeah. very uh, very very warming and comforting, and you sort of feel wrapped into the music. Definitely, absolutely, yes, one hundred percent. Another one I want to talk to you about, which I'm sure that you you know these are like you know, on everyone's uh, lists, <laughs> I apologize, but uh, it, it, this is quite possibly the greatest show that I've seen Disney put together is illuminations, reflections of earth. <laughs> Jeremy is, is having a moment now. I, I think that was, that was like peak. That's peak for me. I, 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 we got, we got to see it five, six years ago. Incredible. It was just an incredible immersive experience. Uh, what was your role in that, uh, in that nighttime spectacular? Going back to 1995, I think, or 96, I was working with the air launch fireworks team and I was asked to come up with a concept for the millennium for air launch fireworks. Okay. And I'd been thinking about the millennium for a while because I knew it was coming up and like everybody else, we're sort of asking ourselves, what is this really all about? What does it mean? Is there any meaning or is it just a big number? (laughs) You know what? And then what does it mean for Disney? How do we take a global event and make it relevant to a park guest with some sort of presentation? Mm. Anyway, I did a massive all encompassing what if presentation for air launch fireworks was um, fireworks in a thousand cities around the world you know, orchestras of, of a thousand and just crazy stuff. And there was a tie-in to the cruise line. There was a tie-in to the movie studio. Um, I propose that we build, that we change all of the hubs of all of the parks into sort of like time central, almost like a Stonehenge look, so that there was a physical place where you could experience the millennium. Anyway, so I didn't think that that was really going to happen. But I wanted to stimulate thinking. And so when the jaws dropped, I knew that that wheels were turning and they were going to be thinking about stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, the fireworks portion, the airlock fireworks portion of the presentation um, morphed into something called Skylenium, which was to be a coordinated fireworks show over all the Disney parks. Then there was going to be a lagoon show, and there had been a lagoon show in development uh, for several years, which, again, the time was not really right for the engineering and the scope that they were trying to do. Okay. It was uh, being designed by Mark Fisher, who designed touring shows for rock bands like the Rolling Stones, wow. Pink Floyd. Um, anyway, it comprised of large cranes. Uh, kind of similar to what you see in Harmonious in terms of physical things with fountains and fireworks and lights on them. Yeah. But uh, the original proposal for the Millennium, they were 200 feet tall or something like that. And it was just impossible to engineer them. So they had spent a lot of money over a few years trying to engineer this show down into a usable package. And it wasn't working. Time was running out. The Skylenium concept wasn't working out either and so in 1997 this all sort of came to a head when everybody realized we really don't have anything yet and once again i stuck my foot in the door and i said well (laughs) why don't we do this (laughs) and uh and i wrote like a two-page 
uh, synopsis of what the Lagoon Show could be. And they called and said, come back to Florida and tell us more about that. And so that's how Reflections of Earth got started. And thinking about it now, 1997, when we started, that was a quarter of a century ago technology. Yeah. So, you know, when I look at Harmonious, at, at, at how incredibly sophisticated it all is, I, I wish I'd had these tools back then, but I don't know exactly how it would have fit thematically. Uh, I almost am glad that I didn't have those tools because it kept me focused on what is the message and how am I going to get people to feel a part of this show without being preachy, you know, without being rah-rah the millennium or yay 2000. Right. I, I want to be subtle and I want to do a show in the way that's more like radio where you make up the visuals in your own mind, you devise your own meaning and then walk away with whatever you want instead of what we wanted to tell you. You know, and I, th- I think that's part of the, the, some of the problems people have with harmonious is because it is, it just, it sits there and then there's a bunch of Disney music. And well, this is a, you know, if you think about um, the time period of reflections and the general attitude of what's going on in the world and society during the millennium, we were sort of prepared for a different kind of message than we are today. The audiences of today are not primed for uh, something to have deep meaning. I don't think Um, (laughs) it's good. It's a good way to put it. I really got lucky that there was a message to come across and a way to tell it that fit the capabilities of the time and uh, well, was culturally appropriate. It, it, I mean, it, it fits the, the vibe and I think the point of Epcot as well, especially the world showcase there, you know, it's teaching people, it's, it's making you think it's making connections, um, which is, which is, is the underlying feeling that you get that sort of ties through each of the pavilions and, and you know all that, and I think Illuminations did a, a a great job with it. I mean, it, uh, it won what like eleven awards or more than that or something. I mean, it's it's a, a multi award winning nighttime spectacular that people still lament the fact that it's gone. I think Jeremy was there, uh, you know, on, on when it was gone. I think you were there too at its last run too, right, Don? I was. Yes, I um, I threw a party for the all the major. Uh, participants in my creative and production team uh, that final night. And uh, as, as we had done on the 10th anniversary as well, we made it to 20 full years and uh, felt like it would be appropriate to get the old gang together to celebrate the fact that we were able to pull this off and make it last. I would be on cloud nine to have one of the successes that you've had in your career. <laughs> but like everything that we've talked about, there, these are are shows that are on people's top five lists for for Disney experiences. These are you know these are the the ones that are still running like Fantasmic. I I'm gonna you know insult everybody in the world right now. I still haven't seen Fantasmic. I still haven't done it. I don't. Oh. I just haven't. He's crazy. I'm crazy, but for no reason, right? For no reason at all. Um, and and it's the one thing that I get literally berated about on this show <laughs> is having not seen it because it's one of those things that people need to go. You you, you got to go see this. And when Illuminations was going, when when we were giving uh, advice to people, you got to go see that show no matter what because the the way the lasers go through the fireworks smoke. Actually, I think I have. 
I think I have a little bit of a of a clippy. Yeah, I do. Hang on a second. I mean, just so energetic and and <clears throat> emotional. I, it just, I don't know, man. Sometimes uh, music, I mean, I guess that's what music is meant to do, but sometimes it really just connects. And uh, I think that show with the lasers and the smoke and they got the fireworks going on, it's just, I still think about it. And we went, what, six years ago, seven years ago? Yep, I've seen it once. Yeah, <laughs> seen it one time, and it was still great. I don't know, that's all I have to say about that. I, have a, I actually have a question. <laughs> Reflections of Earth. Well, first of all, I have a statement. Thank you for 20 years of the best nights ever. Um, on behalf of every Epcot fan, we owe you a debt of gratitude for giving us that. So first, just thank you. Yeah. Um, but Reflections of Earth was, was this nighttime spectacular, but it was only a piece of the Millennium Celebration, which I think you had a hand in. So there's surely was Tapestry of Nations, which led into it. And the music in Tapestry connected to reflections of earth can you just elaborate a bit more on that because it was a much bigger thing than just reflections of earth as amazing as that was yes tapestry was was created and directed by gary pabin who was a longtime disney show director and creator and he had pitched and was working on tapestry of nations with michael curry uh, while we were still figuring out if the lagoon show was a go or not and so when the Lagoon Show was finally turned on, then Gary and I sat down and we said, how can we meld these two different things into one thematic concept? And the uh, Tapestry of Nations, you know, they had the big uh, drum machines that were rolling along and live drummers. So I said, OK, so I'm going to use drums as the lead into my show. And I had been trying to figure out exactly how that's going to work. And I was sitting in my hotel room at uh, the Yacht Club one night watching a hockey game. And people were doing the slow clap that speeds up yeah. and eventually goes so fast <laughs> that you can't keep up. Yeah. And I thought, aha, this is it. And it fits right in with my philosophy of time, which is in the early days, long, long ago, things, new things happened very slowly. And then they started happening more quickly and then more quickly and more quickly. And now we're at today when things are evolving so quickly, we can barely keep up. And I felt this was a pattern that represented the, the whole arc of history, uh, the whole arc of existence and the whole arc of the millennium year leading up to the actual moment of switching over from 1999 to 2000 or 2000 to 2001, whichever year you happen to be there. It's fine with me. So and and we thought about that and and uh, we came up with the idea of the torches and the 19 torches around the lagoon and then the 20th torch representing the 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 button on the 20th century coming from the middle of the earth at the end of the show uh, and then we both used the same composer Gavin Greenaway 
And in the process of working on the music for both shows, Gavin and I did um, collaborating and suggestions both directions and just made it work. God bless Gavin for, for some spectacular music and, and um, you know, that is now still being played. I don't know if you know this, but if you come into the United States from abroad, when you arrive at baggage claim, there is a a state department video that's uh, welcoming you to the United States and they use the music from reflections of earth. (laughs) That's really cool. That's cool. And how, when you're working with him to, to write, well, first of all, well, I don't know what to say next. Um, <laughs> when you're, when you're working with him on this music, how many times do you have to go back and forth? Like, did he get it pretty close the first time? Were there a lot of different versions? What was that like? Tapestry was a bit harder for Gavin because he had never done a parade before. And he was a little stumped by the idea of, of a procession that, wasn't just a regular parade loop or a plodding thing. It needed to be a show, needed to have form and evolve, but it still needed to be kind of a march and procession. So I suggested to him that he might think of it as if it was a bolero. If you know the piece bolero, it starts simply and it builds and it builds and it builds on the same idea um, until it's so massive that you're overwhelmed by it. And that seemed to unlock for him um, an idea on how to approach tapestry. For Reflections, where I worked much more intimately with him, um, he came down to my house and I talked him through the show and I had figured out all my timings, you know, and this is, we need the music before we can do anything serious about, you know, how fast does the barge need to move? How fast does it need to rotate? How many images do we need? which sections have the fountains, which sections have this, that, the other thing. But I had in my head where the story was going to go and how it needed to progress and some idea of proportion. You know, we're going to spend this much time um, in chaos, this much time establishing life, this much time moving into uh, cities and countries, this much time moving into technology and, and then celebration and then a new start for hope for the future laid all that out for him, gave him approximate timings, you know, proportionately, this is longer than this. Mm. This is fast. This is slow. Here's, here are the moments that I want to capture when I'm going to do something specifically with imagery or fountains. Uh, And then he went away and disappeared for a couple of weeks. (laughs) And uh, I'm biting my nails at home, hoping that, you know, it would be good. And when it showed up, it was it was uh, really, really remarkable. Um, he captured, more than anything else, he captured uh, a melodic approach that was exactly what I was hoping for. Uh, and he got the idea of the transitions. And through, I think we went through four major revisions and three minor revisions to get from demo one to completed demo seven. 
Um, it wasn't nearly as painful as I thought it would be <laughs> because he took direction well. And, and I had a very good sense of what works in terms of the pacing of what's possible on the lagoon because I'd done illuminations and laser phonic and new world fantasy. So the lagoon was like an instrument that I knew how to play. Nice. Um, <laughs> so for me, it was, it That's was cool. just understanding the physical logistics of barge movement and fountain programming and all of the technical side of it. But I also had a very good feel for how the story needed to evolve and how it was paced and where the high and low points needed to be. So you had this idea in your head. You talked about it that there was this is going to be fast. This is going to be slower. This is going to be a little bit longer. Did you have tunes in your head that you were like, yeah, this could sound like that? Or were there samples of music that you gave to him for that as well, like you did with the Bolero? Or was this more of a blank slate and just direction for him? I played two or three clips for him. um, And I don't remember now what they were. But I specifically told him, don't do this. But I want you to think about what is happening in this music and how it makes you feel. Mm. Um, In particular, the, uh, the chaos section, I wanted to be not in a constant tempo. I wanted it to be, to feel lopsided and a little bit irregular. And somehow he managed to make it not only irregular, but sound great. You never feel off balance. And yet the music is completely off balance. Right. It still plays like a tune. Right. And, and, and I think that is, and even the celebration part at the end of the show uh, is in seven, four, which is not a, your typical dance to music, but it feels so comfortable like a dance. You just want to get up and move to it. He managed to, to make those odd things feel very, very comfortable. Has all this working with Disney turned you into a Disney guy, Don? Are you still just, uh, you know, into the music part and everything else is just, you know, ancillary? Well, it depends on your definition of a Disney guy. I mean, you can't you can't hang out with these people for 45 years and not pick up a little bit of the magic in your heart, you know? It's <laughs> a very good point. Do you, um, that's, yeah, that's, that is a good point. Do you go to the parks? Do you do the rides? Are you, you know, do you look forward to going on a vacation to Disney or Disney World or whatever, or you're just enjoying the culture when you work with them? Well, my, my time at the Disney park, I mean, I would say that uh, 99.9% of all my time at a Disney park is spent after closing when uh, there's nobody there except me and the crew and the cast and the floats and the audio. Um, and then most of the other tenths of a percent of the time is on opening day or review day when you're there with the guests to see, make sure that it's all working properly. Got it. I try to uh, not go very often so that each time <laughs> I do go, it's a special experience. That makes sense. Um, I've been to Walt Disney World a couple of times, and I was recently there for the 50th anniversary, and uh, I went to Disneyland a week ago. Oh, nice. Just for funsies. Yeah, I wanted to see the Christmas parade. This is the first Disneyland Christmas parade since 1978 that I have not actually been working on. Oh, wow. Wow. That's amazing to me. What is your favorite non-Don Dorsey parade? One you've, you haven't worked on at all? Oh, one that I haven't worked on in one form or another. Yeah. I don't know if they exist. <laughs> well, um, it might not exist. Walt Disney World, 
Walt Disney World has done several parades that were not done at Disneyland. And I'm not familiar with all of them, so I couldn't couldn't rattle off their names. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it would, well, even that one. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Uh, the Festival of Fantasy, I think, uh, that is only about five or six years old. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't work on the parade directly, but that was the launch uh, the launch for that parade of our latest control system. Um, that was the first implementation of it. And then we brought it to Disneyland the year after for paint the night. Oh, wow. Paint the night was great. That was a cool parade. And now that, now that control system is at, at uh, Disneyland, California adventure, Walt Disney world, um, Hong Kong Disneyland, Shanghai Disneyland, not Tokyo Disneyland. They're the lone holdout. Oh, we got to work on them. Let's start a petition. <laughs> the Japanese like to do their own thing. Sure. But, uh, but what they are using uh, is, is um, evolved from how we started them out in 1985 when they got the electrical parade for the first time. Ah, okay. Have you ever joined any of these parades just like as a gas, just to suit up and do one of the things? Yes, I have. <laughs> no. What did you do? I did Goofy on the lead float in America on Parade. Oh, wow. Amazing. That's great. Wow, I early also, on. Jeez. I mean, I had to learn choreography and everything. That's so cool. Um, and I wasn't supposed to do it. I snuck up on there and <laughs> and made it through the whole parade. And it was the first time that I had been in a costume. And inside the Goofy head, you wear a black bag over your head inside the costume head so that when people look through the open mouth, they don't see your actual face. Oh, they see the black. Right. Okay. And being as it was my first time in costume, breathing inside of a black mesh bag for all practical intents and purposes, yeah. just the act of breathing was a little challenging. And then I had to do choreography and then I had to keep from stepping off the front of the float. <laughs> <laughs> so I did that. And then uh, I did a couple of other uh, America on parade appearances. Uh, I uh, did a soda jerk uh, where I pushed a giant ice cream cone up the route. Perfect. And, you know, I was near the sandwich. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Well, that makes sense. You know, sandwich and, and ice cream. And in in the electrical parade, I did the canopy carrier in the Cinderella unit a couple of times. And I drove a snail. Oh, wow. wow. Those look fun. They do look fun. They are fun. It's very disorienting, though. I mean, you've got what looks like the yoke of an airplane to push forward and pull back and turn, you can turn it, but you don't want to turn while you're pushing or pulling because you can end up, if you don't know where the guests are, you can get oh, into yeah. some trouble. Wow. <laughs> you're biting some ankles there. Yeah. I, I just want to keep you a couple more minutes, Don, uh, and then we'll just, this is, uh, we've already taken up a, a big chunk of your time and I, I appreciate that. But I did want to point out because I think it's cool in the middle of all this Disney stuff, you're releasing albums. You're releasing music albums. So we have uh, Bach Busters in 1985. Yes, I'm going to play a little bit of it.
mean, just it must be exhausting to play because that is rapid. I love it. What what about classical music sort of lends itself to that to that style, to that synthesizer style? Because it does mesh really well. Well, I was classically trained, and in 1967, uh, Switched On Bach came out, which was, timing-wise, it was parallel to the release of Baroque Hoedown and the Kaleidoscopic Variations mm. album of Perry and Kingsley. Mm-hmm. And they were, they were sort of the cartoon synthesized sound, and Walter Carlos, Wendy Carlos now, was the serious classical use of synthesizer. And she went on to get a number one classical album with that, but that technology was 1967. And so when I became affiliated with Telarc Records out of Cincinnati, no, I'm sorry, Cleveland, um, they said, what would you like to do for a solo album? And I said, well, I'd like to do uh, a, a more technologically advanced version of Bach now that the synthesizers are fully polyphonic and they respond to velocity and pressure so you can actually mm. feel a dynamic performance as opposed to just notes. And so that's what we did. I, I got a 32-track digital machine brought over to my house and uh, a large console and kind of hid away for multiple months. Um, <laughs> basically, it was filling my spare time with making an album while I was still doing all the Disney stuff. So. <laughs> yeah, you can't help but work. The album titles are, are very funny. There's, you know, there's Beethoven or Bust, <laughs> which I think is very funny. I got a little bit here. Which rocks. I don't know, man. I, it rocks. I really like it. I don't even know how I don't even know what that is. I can't even I can't my mind can't even comprehend it. it like how to like how a human being comes up with that to play it. This is like my barrier well, entry in playing music, like playing the bass guitar. I can't get the B, I got the A, which is the guitar, and the C, which is the music, but the B, which is the brain, that I don't I just they don't all connect for me. Well, I I guess if I think about my whole career in a broad sense. I like to do things that I want to hear or I want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, going all the way back to the first electrical parade experience, you know, I sort of internally said, well, I would do it this way. And that became my subconscious goal that ended up with me doing that. The same with Switched on Bach. I said, well, now that I have these new tools, I would do it this way. And I pitched that to Telarc and they said, great, do that. And, and we had a number one with it. Wow. This was uh, the, one of the most prestigious classical labels at that time. They were in the U.S. and every other classical label was basically based out of Europe. Mm. And Telarc had been very, very well known for their pristine, digital, high quality recordings. But they had never cracked the number one spot on the billboard chart. And we finally were able to do that with Bachbusters. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> what a cool career, man. You know, and it's something you said, it reminded me of, uh, we had a, a Tom Amin on, who's a, a pianist who does very beautiful classical renditions of Disney music in different styles. And it's sort of the same thing where, you know, he he's doing music the way he wants to hear it, what he wants to, to hear. And, and it, it feels like that's sort of how you can achieve at these levels. 
how you can create something, you know, it, it's, it's different when you, when you maybe force an issue to, uh, to, to make something that you don't necessarily, you're not passionate about a hundred percent or whatever, or it's just a paycheck or it's something to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but right. It sounds like that's how you've been able to have such a successful career producing things again. And, you know, like I said, I'm beating the, the, the drum here, but I mean, your work has changed people's lives and it's, it's weird to say, and it's because it's like, oh my God, it's a, a parade. But the, the way that it gets put together in the setting of Disneyland with the music, with it all just combining into one experience, um, it's not just a parade. It is, it's, it's an experience, and um, it's, it's been incredible. I have one last question for you. I have this little light from the Main Street Electrical <sighs> Parade. Actually, I have it. Well, it's it mine now. It uh, it's behind me. Well, I have one, too. Yeah, yeah. So how much can we sell these things for? Are they worth anything? <laughs> You're not selling it. Um, you can find them on eBay, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I mean, shoot. Well, oh, well I, I wouldn't sell it anyway. I think it's pretty cool. Don, I'm finally going to let you go. I apologize for keeping you so long. Uh, I could probably keep you another 45 minutes or an hour. Uh, this is just, It's fascinating. Where can we go to find more about you? Yeah, my website... Um, is is a little bit out of date, but that's uh, you, you could do that, and you can Google. Yeah, <laughs> okay, there you go. Do that. There's uh, <laughs> there's a lot of things on YouTube, and I have a there's a fan page on Facebook. Okay. Um, cool. Called fans of Don Dorsey. Fans believe of Don it or Dorsey. not. All right. Um, and uh, there's people in there who know more about the electrical parade than I do. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Seriously, Don, what a great career! Thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, it was a pleasure speaking with you. I I really appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. I'm sorry the video didn't work as well as we'd hoped, but that's um, all right. We got it done. We got it done. Yeah, we this was an absolute privilege. I feel so yeah. lucky. Thank you. Oh gosh, thank you. You're making me blush. If you could only see it, <laughs> we'll take your word for it. All right, Don. We'll we'll let you go, man. Have a good night. Thank you again. Thank you, guys. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. All right, guys. We're gonna take a quick break after that because I need something to drink. We're gonna come right back and we're gonna finish up with the show. Hang tight. This ears up podcast. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And now, back to the show that's more fun than waiting in line for Peter Pan on a hot August Anaheim day. Ears up. All right, welcome back, everybody. Man, we spent it's not saying much. an hour and f- like 40 minutes speaking with, <laughs> with Don Dorsey. Uh, what what an amazing, what a, this is really cool. I, and I, I have probably half a page more of questions for him. That we could have gone on, but I sort of start feeling bad because it's 10 o'clock now, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I wanted to just tell him, like, like, I mean, he did illuminations. We didn't really talk about the original illuminations, but like, I wanted to be like, that's what hooked me on Disney. Like, that was the first thing I ever saw. And I remember that night. Like, that was your gateway drug. I, I was 13 years old. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I just wanted to like gush over him more. But I was like, I have, that's not what this is about. But that's what I wanted to do. You could have. write him a letter. Write him a letter. I got his email. You made him blush. I got his email out. Yeah, you did. You made Don Dorsey blush. 
What do you think of that? What an amazing, uh, I mean, what that was amazing just the guy. best hour and a half of my life. Like, it was just great. <laughs> I loved all of it. And he had so much insight. And, like, oh, working with Gavin Greenaway. <sighs> That's what I mean. Like, I, I could have, we could have just gone on tan, even the first 10 minutes. I'm like, oh, yeah. I need to rain, I need to rein this in because I'm already thinking of questions based on what he's saying. That's not what I have here. Yeah. I mean, come on. You, you, how, how cinematic was, was his even origin story about hanging out with his dad on the sitting, laying on the roof or the hood of their car as the fireworks go off and his dad's explaining the chem, like, I just thought this big, you know, crane shot and slowly pushing in and this whole like scene. And then you pull back and you can see this, them silhouetted against the, I just picture all this in my head. I'm like, this, this is already going to be an insane interview. Oh, for sure. I think one of my favorite parts of, of of his whole arc and story is that he's not a Disneyland fa- or Disney fanatic. Yes, and he's that's just like that's why. Job. And that's <laughs> I had those questions, the seven questions pulled up, and that's why I was asking. So, are you? You know, I was, was kind of glad you didn't. I was do trying it. to feel, yeah, because I didn't get the feeling that he would have he would care about it yeah. or have opinions about it, especially the Walt Disney question at the end, where it's like, like, I mean, <laughs> again. Sorry. It's getting late. It is getting late. <laughs> and what a gentleman. I mean, you know, through, worked through, stayed through all the, the technological issues yes. in the beginning and didn't, you know, it didn't throw him off at all. Yeah. Just what a what a great guy. Yeah. It's phenomenal. Absolutely what, phenomenal. He stuck what through it, I got was that he was his own best hype man, but in yeah. the most humble way. Like, mm. hey, I can I can do this. You need this. Well, I can do yeah, this. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. let me look over here. Oh wait, no, yours is better. We'll we'll go with you. Yeah. Again, I mean, now I just want to talk about what we heard. <laughs> but it was it was really incredible, and it's it's you know it's one of those. It's almost like a Rolly Crump thing, mm-hmm. where you're in the right place at the right time, but you're also confident enough in your skill set to yes. be able to not only pitch your idea, but then execute it. And be okay with refining it and whatever. Like it that's, just that that's very, and I think in a creative world that's not easy to come by. Yeah, a lot of creative people are very emotional, and I know I don't know any of them. I don't know a <laughs> single person like that. But to like have to be grounded in that way of like this is exactly what I'm. I'm structured enough to to be able to do this. I think is is it's not easy. Yeah. I, that was actually the his story that stuck out to me the most was that he convinced them that he should pitch the executives. Like yes. <laughs> he was confident enough in his idea and in himself and his skill set to just convince them that he needs to go in front of the Disney executives. And, it's just, <laughs> right. and I think that's what Bev's talking about too. Like it, there, there's there's a really nice humbleness to that where it's not he sees them as peers and that's the only way that i think people can can get ahead sometimes is to just realize that executives you know at that level are just human beings and i want to tell them my idea what like- yeah it's the same thing i tell anybody if you meet me in person i'm just a person oh my god you don't need to really blow it out of proportion i'm not a superhero oh. or a superhuman i'm just a guy uh-huh. and oh so gosh. we can instantly relate <laughs> Uh, thanks everybody for joining the show. You can find us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Um, I don't know. Some other sites probably, Beth. Uh, send, <laughs> send feedback to Taryn at earsup-podcast.com. If you have show suggestions, they go to Terrence at earsup-podcast.com. You can say hi. 
Hi. To, be- to Bev. Hi. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> and anything else comes to me. Nobody knows. <laughs> uh, guys, I, sick. I didn't tell you before, but Cinderella is here. Everyone oh, yeah. say hi to Cinderella. She's our newest. Um, our kid, Alice, now is into, she's at the age where she has uh, imaginary friends. But because it's us and we're cursed, they're, they're, her imaginary friends are Disney characters. Nice. And I say we're cursed because like we're not the biggest Disney movie fan people. And it's not like she sits and watches 100 Disney movies a day. She rarely watches them, honestly. But when she like hap- her brain, that part of her brain happened to turn on when she saw Cinderella for like the second time. And now it's Cinderella. And she goes, uh, Daddy, do you have a show? I'm like, yeah, I got a show tonight. Uh, you know, mommy and I got a show. Are you going to talk to Jeremy? <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk to Jeremy. And she's seen Jeremy like once. And, uh, you know, and Terrence and Auntie Bev and blah, blah, blah. She goes, Cinderella could join you. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. I go, but I that's thought she's cute. sleeping with you. I thought she was sleeping. The Well, Belle will be with me, so Cinderella can be with me. I was like, this is getting out of control. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. If she sends Doc and Sneezy in here next, I think we have a problem. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. But anyway, Cinderella's here. She's a little quiet. Um, concierge, everybody. If you're going to the parks, if you, go, if you want to go on the Disney cruise, if you want to do anything like that, uh, go to concierge.com. If you're trying to get into um, the Star Wars Galactic Cruiser, if you're trying to figure out what the heck Disney Genie and Disney Genie Plus is and what a lightning lane pass is and how they all work together, Concierge will help you do that as well. So go to Concierge.com. They are our travel uh, partner in this whole thing. Uh, we love them, and uh, I think they tolerate us. That's basically <laughs> what happens. But, uh, no, they they are your experts. If You buy a ticket, one-day, two-day, three-day park ticket through Concierge, and they will help you uh, book your uh your reservations for the parks. They'll help you book your reservations for to eat. They'll tell you where to go. They'll help you plan your day. They'll do all that fun stuff. Even if, even if you're in the park, even after the transaction has happened. If you're in the park and you go, man, I really want to eat at Club 33, or not Club 33, geez. <laughs> yeah, no, not that. <laughs> yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> at uh, Carthay Circle, but I don't want to wait on hold with the thing or whatever. You just ping them. They'll do it for you, and everything will be fine. So, concierge.com. It's amazing. Um, all right, if you want to support the show, head over to Etsy.com slash shop slash Coviers and buy some shirts and all that kind of fun stuff. But the best way is Patreon.com slash Ears Up. Uh, the secret show for November just got posted, so that's fun. We're going to be recording a secret show for December here in a couple weeks, um, and that'll be, uh, you know, like that. Um, I don't really want to talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe anymore. We had watched a lot of movies on that. Uh, I will say the Avengers Age of Ultron was probably the best Avengers movie. It was really good. But next up is Ant-Man, and I don't want to watch Ant-Man again. I'm excited wait, to watch Ant-Man. Wait, Actually, no, Ant-Man no. is Abby's favorite. I like it. Wait a minute. Age of Ultron, the best Avengers movie? I like it. Yeah, I liked it. It was good. It's definitely not the best Avengers movie, but um, first of it's, all, uh, it's good. It's like I've never seen Endgame, though. But that, well, we haven't but, seen it yet in the thing, and I don't remember it at all. Okay. Endgame isn't even as good as Infinity War, though. Infinity War is fine. Um, no, Endgame is better. Thor Dark World was good. I'll tell you that. What? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. That's the worst. Th- I mean, Jeremy, what do you think? Is that the worst, worst Thor? Thor? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's so many bad movies to pick from. <laughs> I've never seen any of these. Yeah, I've I never know. seen. I don't think I've seen. And what is it? Marvel movie. Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, I would say you're not missing out on much, but uh, the first Iron Man is still going to be probably peak. But uh, anyway, yeah. um, we're going to do some news here in a second. The 21st Amendment Brewery's latest beer release, Tropical Brew Free or Die IPA, puts an island vacation in their whimsically designed cans. That's right, cans. This refreshing year-round release, Tropical IPA, is brewed with pale and Munich malts, brimming with a Zaka, Citra Cryo, and Mosaic hops, and topped with a splash of pineapple flavor. The result is a clean, refreshing beer featuring a mix of sweet malt, balanced bitterness, fruit-forward hops, and a nice tropical vacation at the finish. Tropical Brew for Your Die IPA is available at your local good beer shop, neighborhood taproom, and anywhere else people come together to find great craft beer. All right. A little bit of Disney news here, folks, and we're going to get out of here. we got, I think, like four stories, and uh, it'll be good. There's a rant we can go on. News that's fit to cover. It's the ears up Disney news. Disneyland is sold out for the month of December. Daily ticket and annual pass holder reservations for Disneyland and DCA are unavailable for the rest of the month. Such a weird time to be a Disneyland fan. Yeah, bro. It's uh, it's odd. At time of publication, which I think was yesterday or whatever, the reservations for Wednesday, December 1st were still available for visitors wishing to purchase daily tickets, but daily ticket reservations for December 2nd through the 31st were sold out. Magic Key annual pass holder reservations were sold out for the same month as well. Disneyland fans hoping to catch a glimpse of Christmas decor at the Anaheim theme parks still have a chance with the holiday celebrations stretching through January 9th. So if you want to see the holidays, you got to come after the holidays. How'd you guys mute it? I'm sorry. I'd be livid. I would be absolutely livid. I'd be super. Yeah. Especially if I bought the magic key pass or whatever, I'd be like, this is not, this can't be okay. But, well, and most of, most of December is blocked out anyway. So you had very few days that you could choose from. Mm. And the days that you could choose were, I mean, they've been gone for quite a while, I think. Well, so that's a good point. It's an interesting phenomenon. So um, I was listening to um, one of our other shows, the Supreme Resort slash um, Scraping the Vault slash Audrey went to Disneyland for the first time show. (laughs) Yeah, which was a good show. I listened to that show. It was a great show. It really was. But so uh, Dan was talking. So his sister decided to go with them to Disneyland and she, I guess, in the tiki room decided I want to upgrade to a magic key. And so she had a reservation at that point. And she <laughs> she upgraded to the magic key. They walked over to California Adventure. By the time they got from Disneyland to DCA, her ticket had gone from a normal park hopper ticket with reservations to a magic key. And she couldn't get a reservation for DCA. Like in that day, and they almost didn't leave let her in, and they said, "Okay, we'll let you in inside of DCA, but Disneyland's a completely different story. You probably can't get back in there." And like, this is just so bizarre to me. This whole thing is so bizarre to me. So I did the same thing, not in the middle of the tiki room, but I did it. I (laughs) graded my tickets through the app, also. Mm -hmm. But it was pretty clear. Like the verbiage was like, "Do not." upgrade this until you're on your last day of your ticket in the last park you plan to hop to because it will eliminate all existing reservations but that being said if i had made that mistake and disneyland didn't let me back in i might have ended up on the blacklist wow pissed yeah me too it's 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 very frustrating you know time uh, to navigate these things but 
There you go. So don't I hope you're not planning on going to the park just spontaneously for the rest of the month. Uh, Disneyland announces dates for the Lunar New Year and Food and Wine Festivals in 2022. Oh, this is kind of fun. Uh, DCA will host a Lunar New Year event on January 21st through February 13th. And the Food and Wine Fest comes back on March 4th through April 26th. So uh, plan now because the way it's going, you're not going to be able to get in yeah. <laughs> anytime soon, man. Uh, DCA's Lunar New Year event celebrates Chinese, Korean, and Vietnamese cultures and traditions with multicultural performances and foods. The Year of the Tiger, which instantly makes me think of the song Eye of the Tiger, which instantly makes me think of the Fraggle Rock theme song because the intros are basically the same. That that bass line for Eye of the Tiger and the intro to Fraggle Rock are sort of the same. Uh, Don't make me. Was that you humming it? (laughs) <laughs> no, that was me saying I don't know if I agree with that. I'm a look. Oh, okay, hold on. Okay, I might be able to. Oh, I, okay. now I can kind of hear it in my head. Yeah, and now uh, it will never, it will never leave your yeah, mind. Why are you doing this? I don't know because I don't like any of you. Here it is. It's Fraggle Rock, yeah. Yep. Okay, and then obviously that, the, and then here is. Eye of the Tiger. And you got to get past the dun dun dun. It's such a good song. <laughs> I love it. I'm pumped, ready to polish my Camaro to the friggin' metal. The video rules too. If you've never seen the video for Eye of the Tiger, it's so good. The most non threatening man walking down the street. <laughs> All right, here it comes. pretty similar anyway sorry that's what i think i think they're pretty similar but regardless whatever who cares it's the year of the tiger and we'll bring tigger to dca for the lunar new year festivities all right along with some of his other winnie and the pooh pals uh, Raya from Disney 2001, Raya and the Last Dragon animated movie will also make appearances in the Redwood Creek Challenge area of DCA. Mickey and Minnie will return in their seasonal attire along with Mulan and Mushu in Mulan's Lunar New Year procession. 2021 new, Lunar New Year event was put on hold by the blah, 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 blah. Anyway, so that sounds fun. So you're going to be at the parks. Uh, definitely check out the uh, uh, Chinese New Year. Sounds cool. Um, let's... Let's do the rant first, and then we'll end on a positive note, I guess. How about that? That sounds good, right? That sounds like us. Yeah. Doesn't it sound like something we would do? We're really positive. Yeah. Today we are. I can't. I couldn't hear you guys. Hi, guys. Can you hear us now? Yeah. I had you turned down. I apologize. Were you saying something cool and valuable? (laughs) I apologize. (laughs) My bad. Sorry, guys. Uh, All right. Let's do this rant. So, uh, you know how much we like hacks on this show? Oh, boy. There's a new there's a new hack for uh, getting on Rise of the Resistance. Okay. Um, yeah. So here's here's the headline: Disney guest reveals Rise of the Resistance hack, and hack is in all caps to avoid long wait times. Can you guys guess what the hack is? Just off the top of your heads. Checking the virtual queue. Checking. There's no the more virtual times. queue anymore. Oh, that's right. Checking the wait times on the app. <laughs> <laughs> The hack, are you ready for this? No. Is to get there early. 
That's really that's a, hack? that's a really good hack. The TikTok user explains her early morning hack for riding the popular Galaxy's Edge attraction. This is these are Freaking words that somebody idiot. sincerely wrote. Okay, this is this is a sincerest uh, form of thing. Quote: Rise of the resistant tips without the virtual queue. First, we got to the Disneyland gates at 7 a.m. and they let us in at 7:30. Stay to your left. The line forms at the Frontierland entrance. You are not supposed to run. Once Disneyland officially opens, the cast members will walk you onto the attraction. We got on in 30 minutes. It was worth it. It still took 30 minutes. It's not even that. Yeah, it's still 30 minutes. Oh, Jeez. So the park opens at 8, so she got there at 7. Then they then the once the park opens, then you can go and queue up. So she waited an hour and a half still. It's not a hack. It's a tip. Yeah, she's just waiting in a different line. Yeah, and bless her, she's yeah. she's like saying this is a tip. But for some reason, uh, inside the magic decides that everything is a hack. Here's a hack for not scuffing your um, well, your feet and getting, getting blisters on your feet. Put shoes on. Yeah, nobody's gonna click on a tip, <laughs> but they'll click on a hack. All caps hack. So, and I had to do it because I'm like, this is this this can't be another one of these because this is like the second stupid article they wrote. And it is. So I I just, I fed it, whatever. And then I decided to scroll down and look at the comments. And the comment section was worth the click. <laughs> Very first comment. To avoid waiting, you have to get in early and wait. Isn't that still waiting? <laughs> and the other guy, some guy replies, the only hack is the author. Oh. oh. And now these comments are from yesterday. This website, Inside the Magic, still has these comments on their, <laughs> on their thing. So people, so... Other hacks like us or like myself, we're able to then just throw em- enormous amounts of shade at these people. <laughs> uh, and someone else says, yes, she still waited one and a half hours, probably more by the time the cast member walked them over. And an hour and a half before park opens, plus the walking time, plus an additional 30 minute wait. This is not a hack. You waited way too long. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in November, <laughs> we walked on whatever uh, people are paying 45 minutes. Um well, also, yeah. isn't isn't getting to Disneyland at Rope Drop a hack for whatever <laughs> ride you go on first? Yeah, right. <laughs> right exactly. I mean, pretty much, yeah. yeah. It's interchangeable. Yeah, Plaza cool. and hack get there at Rope Drop. <laughs> Look, guys, I have the best hack. Yeah, you don't know let your up? kids fall in fountains. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> you know who came up with this hack? Ben Franklin, <laughs> early to bed, early to rise, or when, no, early bird gets the worm. That's yeah, it. something like that. That's so stupid. With that. Ben Franklin hacks. Yeah. Bob says, get to the park early, stand and wait. Get let in, stand and wait. Led to the ride, stand and wait in the actual line. If the hack is to stand and wait at multiple places as well as have to get up very early to get to the park before it opens... I will stick to sleep and standing in one line when they tell me an estimated time that works for me. I got in the line early this week. They said 110 minutes. I was on in 60. The hack waited for 90 plus with the hack, and I did it in 60, just winging it. (laughs) And then Brandon, you need to study what a hack is. Arriving early to be at the front of the line isn't a hack. And then he says, also, cast members do not walk you on to the attraction. They sure don't. Once the rope drops, guests do run, and they far outpace any cast members who aren't walking to the attraction. Anyway, 
The only cast members are the ones already at the attraction entrance. And again, they do not walk you on. Right. <laughs> and also, yeah, I mean, the running thing, I was like, yeah, of course they're going to tell you not to run. Freaking run. Yeah. Uh, the last comment is uh, so far is uh, Fred, and he just simply wrote face palm. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, there are no positive comments on this article, and I just don't understand how these people they're keep getting comments. writing this and stuff. Clicks. They're yeah, getting engagement. That's, yeah. that's all they care about. That's what it is. I, I have a question. They don't care how much, they, but they're yeah. gonna get like someone has to unfollow them, right? Like yeah. if I get fooled enough times, I'm like, that's it. I'm out. You're muted. Yeah. You're unfollowed. It's over. Yeah, so you're that, blocked. That's true. Well, like, yeah, you're. <laughs> I um. So can we? Can I ask a question? Because I don't know if any of you guys have have dealt with this. I know we did when we went, but I kind of liked the virtual queue. I so I, I I'm not talking about the fountain. No, <laughs> I liked the virtual queue. Babe, if you're going to dunk on Terrence, do it on the mic, please. Yeah, why I, that they... was actually just for him. <laughs> so wait, so they got rid of the virtual queue that doesn't exist. So there's only Correct. standby line for right. Rise of the Resistance Correct. or Lightning we, Lane now. Yeah, or Lightning that's not even lane here at Disneyland yet, yet, right? Okay. So when we when we went, they still had the virtual queue. Yeah, and what it allowed us to do is to do other rides and have your same it's like it's basically like a fast pass like okay it's time to go back now i want to wait the 60 to 70 minutes in the line right now we didn't we waited what 20 minutes total not even excuse me i apologize that was terrible no i'm gonna keep that in i'm not even gonna edit that out (laughs) not even um yeah it was like 15 maybe the ride that should have had a freaking virtual queue was web slingers (laughs) <laughs> it should have had a ver- it should have just been a don't go on this ride <laughs> just showing you a picture a bartender of oh so is the virtual queue gone because it's supposed to be lightning lane stuff but they haven't actually started that yet is that the whole deal no idea or did does disney just not like their fans anymore yeah i don't know um, i feel like that that right there there was also yeah. a lot of complaints because if you didn't get there are people who said I came all the way here to ride this ride, and then when I at seven or at one or noon when I tried to get into a virtual queue, I couldn't. Yeah, and yeah. now I'm mad because I can't go on that ride. Gotcha. Like if you don't get the virtual queue, you have you don't have the opportunity. You, you don't have the opportunity to wait trip. in a two hour line. Gotcha. This is you ruined it. You ruined it. You ruined it. Well, then they should keep. Well, I mean, I don't, never yeah, mind. I'm not running the company. I don't know. Well, I mean, they're going to eventually bring genie plus and then they'll just charge people who want to yeah expedite their way why not that's true um all right everybody you've heard that uh it's a small world flooded jeremy and i did a classic bit on it on the last uh in depth we had audio from it it was classic yeah (laughs) classic um but anyway it's apparently it's reopening very soon the Orange County Register reports that It's a Small World will reopen next week after several weeks of repairs following a major incident that damaged the machinery that operates the ride. Uh, you know, making nobody... You could have just, like, made that a walk through, just drain the slough <laughs> or whatever. People walk slough. through it. They'll still do it. Whatever it is. I don't know what it is. Flu. Yeah. Flu, slough, slough foot flu. <laughs> flu foot slew. I think slough is something totally different. <laughs> Sluice. Whatever. I don't know. Uh, The flooding occurred on November 10th after rides. Waterways were being refilled after Disney cast members outfitted the ride with its annual holiday decorations. The maintenance room was flooded during the process, damaging both the electrical systems and ride controls. While repairs on this scale would usually take months to complete, 
Disney Parks assembled a team made up of 20 different departments to quickly repair the ride before Disney's holiday season ended. 75 employees were involved with the actual repairs, with Disney bringing in parts from other It's a Small World rides at other Disney attractions. They are shipping other parts in from other places around the world. They're shipping their pants. Yeah. Uh, Hope you got your shipping pants on. An industrial strength dehumidifier was also dropped into the ride via crane to help dry out the flooded machinery in about 48 hours. Wow. Giving the Disney crews a better sense of the damage and needed repairs. Um, anyway, small world equates equals Christmas at Disneyland. Disney ride systems manager Jason Tomlin told the OCR in an interview about the repairs. Quote, that theme really brought the team together towards the common goal. I'm sure that the team cared so much about Christmas time in Disney. It's, just, it's fine. You can just say we all wanted the ride up because it did. We wanted to do it. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, apparently, they're working on it 24 seven. Dang. Wow. That's why they needed 75 people. Yeah. Day and night for the last, like, what, two, three weeks to get it up and running. It's crazy that there was that much damage. Wait, I'm sorry. I missed the day. When did it flood? The 22nd, I think, of November? No, I think you said November 10th. November 10th, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know. I was supposed to, it was supposed to open on the 12th. And I was there on the 12th, and I was like, oh, Small World didn't open. That sucks. uh, Oh, yeah, there you go. Apparently, there were things going on I didn't know about. (laughs) Um, apparently, because the ride dates back to 1964, many of the parts used to operate the ride are no longer available on the open market. Hmm. That seems accurate. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's it. We're done. All right. What a good one. It was a good show. Jeremy, I, look, man, I really appreciate you uh, you being here for that. I think that was uh, clutch. It'd be great. Your love and your knowledge really shown. And thank you to Terrence and Beth, too. And Taryn, I guess. And me. Thanks. I'm here. Yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Really appreciate it. Um, My brain's sort of fried right now. I don't really know what else to say. Um, So I'm just going to say, listen to all the other shows. Terrence mentioned a couple shows I've never heard of. What is it called? Supreme. (laughs) The Supreme Supreme Vault. The Supreme Vault. Yeah, Scraping the Resort. Scraping the Resort. (laughs) That's right, everybody. <laughs> Listen to Scraping the Resort. Uh, no, uh, we have Bantha Milk. We have Supreme Resort. We have uh, Scraping the Vault. We have all that kind of fun stuff. And then uh, in a couple weeks, we have Dave from Dave Land Web coming back on the show to talk about Holiday Land and uh, some other cool stuff going on. And then, of course, the first show back in January of 2022 is going to be our year in review, which everybody's already ready for, I'm sure. So we get a lot of fun stuff coming up. Anyway. Thanks a lot, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, Thank you to Don Dorsey. And until next time, we'll see you guys in the parks.